Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Level Playing Field Podcast. Level Playing Field is my podcast. My name is Randy Boos. Why interview people who are LGBTQ and involved in sports? Um, before I get to this episode, I want to talk briefly, um, just have an announcement. I'm going to be stopping this podcast. Next week will be my final episode. Don Ennis, who is my guest for my final episode from Outsports, um, is going to announce what's coming in my place. And I'm really excited for this new podcast that's coming. Um, but more on that next week. Um, I'll really go into my thoughts and, and uh, process for canceling the podcast next episode. This episode, though, it's with the current W Series Communications Director, Matt Bishop. Matt has spent um, years around auto racing, and we talk a lot about his time with magazines. We talk about his time with McLaren, where he was the Director of Communications. We talk a lot. We talk about AIDS and HIV in the 80s, him growing up, being born in the 60s to an amazing woman, um, and we start the conversation with his mom. Without further ado, though, I just want to get this episode going there's no wrap-up for me at the end, so I want to say thank you for listening. And without further ado, here is Matt Bishop. Welcome, Matt, to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. You have definitely been a guest I've wanted for a while, and with the new novel coming out, I, it's the perfect time to get you on. I was looking into your, your life as, as I prepared for this, and one of the things that really fascinated me was really your family. Your mom was a novelist, married an American who was a classic pianist. You have family that were suffragists. You grew up in a family that was definitely in modern political speak were liberal. Tell me a little bit about what it was like as a kid for you before, you know, sex, sexuality became a thing before auto racing. Just what are some moments you remember? I mean, I mentioned before we started recording that your mom had professors in England, who range from C.S. Lewis to uh, Forrester, and they're two totally different people. And I want to hear what her influence on you was. Well, I was born in 1962 in London, and my mother was a novelist from a very, very literary background. Her mother had been a novelist. That was my grandmother, of course. Uh, and my grandmother's aunt had been a novelist and my grandmother's grandmother had been a poet and a suffragist. Um, so, so I came on my mother's side from a long tradition of not only um, literary people, but also uh, liberal um, politics. And on my father's side, my father was and is, my mother's passed away sadly, but my father was and is a Californian concert pianist, classical, very, very classical, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, all that kind of thing. My mother and father were together for a short time, only about uh, three years, um, but I'm still in touch with my father, but he, he wasn't uh, um, living with us during mm -hmm. my childhood. So very much I was brought up by my mother and brought up to read and to love books and to revere writing and writers. I suppose it wasn't a surprise that I drifted into journalism when I did. But prior to that, yes, my mother wrote two novels when 
she was in her early 20s and therefore I was a, 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 a little kid, a baby or, 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 or a toddler, probably around that time. And yes, she had been educated at the University of Cambridge and she had been tutored uh, in the late 50s by C.S. Lewis, by E.M. Forster and by F.R. Leavis, who's not as famous as those two, but in terms of the respect in which he's held as an English literature lecturer and critic at the very top. So, yeah, she was, you know, that's, I suppose, what Cambridge University was like in the late 50s. And I was born in the early 60s. And I, therefore, was born into that very literary world. It's just mind-boggling how strong of a woman your mother appeared. And we'll get to you. Sorry if we focus a little bit on your mom for a second. But I, I, one of the things that caught my eye was she was a defense witness for the later Chatterley trial in 1960. Yes. She fought. I mean, one of the, I think she was interviewed later on, and she said that great writers should be shared and not edited or censored. And so at a young age, you were probably hearing about a tr- the voice coming out of people. Let them, let them be what they write. It, it's interesting because... Going back to that young age, um, going back to that young age, obviously encouraged to read. Was your mom's influence? I mean, I have so many thoughts. So sorry if I'm a little rambly, but how was her influence on you when you were reading, when you were in school? So my mother was called as a witness uh, for the Lady Chatterley case in 1960. That was two years before I was born. I was born in 1962. But she was called because my grandfather, her father, was a friend of Michael Rubenstein, who was the lawyer, I think, for Penguin Books, uh, which was the defending publisher for the D.H. Lawrence against the Crown, or Penguin Books against the Crown, when the Crown had decided that Ladies Chatterley's lover should be um, banned for obscenity. And you have to remember, this is 1960. Okay, it's 60 years ago, but it's not 500 years ago. And, you know, in the court case, one of the questions that was asked was, uh, would you be happy for your servants to read this book? That was an apparently normal question that was asked of witnesses some of whom obviously did not have servants, some of whom were servants themselves. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, my mother was called because she was then 20 and she was a convent girl. She'd gone to a Catholic convent school. And I'll be honest, I think she was chosen by Michael Rubenstein, who was the Penguin defence lawyer, for her virginal appearance and profile. On the other hand, mm-hmm. if this very virginal young woman of 20 says that she has read the book and is unharmed by it and uncorrupted by it, then what business does the Crown have to prevent the wider public from reading it? That was the um, the, the rationale behind having her as a witness, and it worked. It was persuasive, and the case was, of course, famously won. In a sense, by the time I came along, two years after that, yes, okay, my mother had appeared in the Lady Chatterley's Lover case uh, in its defence. 
Um, she had studied English literature at Cambridge University with some very grand people. She had begun to or was beginning to write novels of her own. Her first two novels, Perspectives and Playing House, all about the same time, you know, just about at the time of my birth or just before. And all of that added up really to me coming into a, being born into a world uh, of literature. Also, my mother's two of her best friends at that time, contemporaries of her, were Margaret Jabble, uh, who she went, um, she knew very well, was a contemporary of hers. I think Margaret Jabble was at Oxford when my mother was at Cambridge, but they were great friends. And Carol Churchill, or perhaps Margaret Drabble was at Cambridge. Anyway, they they were they, they were also um, they were Cambridge or Oxford, and um, my mother being at Cambridge and Carol Churchill, who's still alive today, as Margaret Drabble is. Margaret Drabble, obviously a famous novelist. Carol Churchill, a famous playwright, uh, whose uh, plays have been on in London on the West End and in New York on Broadway and so on. And again, you know, they were young mums living in North London uh, around us. And I know their children, uh, Margaret Drabble's children and Carol Churchill's children. They're my uh, contemporaries. And I used to play with them while these three ladies of letters were talking about whatever they were talking about over coffees and teas, but we would hear. And I suppose uh, without almost knowing it, we were just absorbing um, that uh, uh, feeling of um, of literature being normal life. So then how do you get involved in auto race? So when I was a little kid, I was one of those annoying little kids that walks down the street. I'm told, my mother told me this, that I would walk down the street picking out, just naming the cars. I'm, I'm talking about from my pram or my pushchair, apparently, from my buggy. I'd be saying Austin, Cambridge, Morris, Oxford, Ford, Corsair, Vauxhall, Cresta, you know, all these British car brands that no longer exist, of course. But I would call them out, and I don't know how I got to recognise them, but I did. And I was one of these nerdy kids that loved cars. And then, and I was not encouraged so to do. My mother had no interest in cars. She didn't have a driver's license. My father had left. Uh, we didn't have a car. Uh, very few people did have cars, you know, in London in the early 60s. You had to be quite wealthy, and we certainly weren't. Anyway, I was a lover of football, English soccer, and I had uh, a pocket money present from my mother, which was a weekly um, magazine called Shoot. So I went into the local newsagent to pick up my copy of Shoot, and there I saw on the magazine counter a magazine called Autosport. I'd never heard of it. And on the cover of it was a car the like of which I'd never seen. Of course, it was a Formula One car, a racing car, a single-seater Formula car, which, of course, you do not see on the street. And you have to remember that Formula One motor racing, which is now utterly enormous global sport, was unseen on British television at that time. I'm talking about this would have been about 1972 when I was about nine, mm -hmm. nine or ten. And 
the British Grand Prix and the Monaco Grand Prix were the two Formula One races that were on television, but none of the others were. And I certainly hadn't watched them. I was only nine. I wasn't made aware of them. I didn't know about them. Nobody at school talked about them. Nobody was interested in Formula One. It was a minority sport on the television, very little, never on the radio, never uh, in the newspapers, not a subject of conversation. And I saw this magazine and I thought, what a cool car. So I bought it. I can't imagine how much it was. It was a small amount of money. I think 12 and a half pence, um, you know, tiny amount of money. Uh, I bought it, took it home, read it from cover to cover avidly and became there and then a Formula One fan. But Formula One motor racing was in that sense, therefore, for me, uh, almost a guilty secret. Nobody I knew interested in it. Nobody I knew had never uttered the term Formula One. My mother probably hadn't heard of it, and nobody at school ever talked about it. But I had my hobby, and I bought Autosport every week. And years and years and years later, of course, I had a column on Autosport and was the editorial director of the company that published it. But we're, we're missing out quite a few years in between. So let's bring it all together to and being an LGBT sports podcast. When did you start to realize that you weren't like the other boys? Uh, I suppose I began to work that out at a very young age, you know, um, I don't know, 10, something like that. Uh, the beginnings of puberty. Uh, and of course, I'm now 57. So we're talking about half a century ago now. And although London now is a very libertarian place for children to grow up LGBTQ+, in those days, it certainly wasn't. That There was no positive representation of gay men, or indeed women, or bisexual, or certainly transgender, anywhere at all. But as a gay man, there was one person on television who was a comedian called Danny LaRue, cross-dresser, and all played very camp for laughs. But there was no normal depiction of what it could be to be a gay man, not in a social sense, not in a sexual sense. All of it was hush, hush. And if it was mentioned at all, it was in the context of sin and crime. Don't forget, it was only in 1967. I was born at a time when sex between men was a crime punishable by prison and hard labor. And only in 1967, when I was five, did the law change. But the law changed because of the Wolfenden Report of 1967 in the UK, or in England, actually. The law changed to allow the following. It allowed sex between two men, adults consenting. So the phrase came out, consenting adults in private. They had to be adult. That meant they had to be more than 21. The age of consent for straight sex was 16, but for gay sex between men was 21. Completely different age. Oh, it, had to be it had to be only two men. It couldn't be three. 
It also had to be strictly in private, which meant that those two men could not have sex in a house in which other people were sitting or sleeping or doing anything else in other rooms. It also therefore meant that those two men could not have sex in a hotel because a hotel was not regarded as sufficiently private because they were not alone in the dwelling place or in the building. And the police, who had been very much against the passing of the Wolfenden report, therefore alighted on and prosecuted around the edges of what had been made legal with extreme care, effort and energy. So, yes, gay sex between men had been legalised in 1967, but actually prosecutions for gay sex went up after 1967 because the police were angry and they wanted to find loopholes around which to prosecute. So they prosecuted people for things like men, for things like soliciting, importuning, gross indecency, those kinds of things. It was actually quite difficult to have sex. Yeah, I could imagine. I mean, right into my teenage years, when I began to think about having sex myself, uh, it, it was still, although it was technically legal, but only at the age of 21. And of course, who waits till they're 21? So you knew you were breaking the law. <laughs> it wasn't an easy time. I was 21 in 1983. So every, all the sex I had before then was illegal. And who waits till 21, as I said? Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, you go from, from that then to the AIDS pandemic, and it's really 20 years or so of just horrible time for gay men in England. Well, I remember reading or seeing the front page of a magazine, uh, sorry, a newspaper called The Sun, The Sun, which is still a big selling newspaper and website in the UK. But at that time, Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about the early 80s, I think it was about 1982, when I would have been about 20. uh, uh, I saw this front page, page one of The Sun, and it had a story about a New Yorker, a young guy from New York, gay guy called Kenny Schwartz. I won't ever forget it. And the picture on the page one, the front page of The Sun, was a huge blow-up image of his face, um, pockmarked with lesions caused by Kaposi sarcoma, which was a sight that we were not yet used to and obviously looked very shocking. And then in set was a small picture of him from, let's say, a year before strikingly handsome young man, strikingly handsome. And so there was a before and answer, sorry, before and after, page one. And it was described Mm -hmm. as the gay plague, not as AIDS. The word AIDS wasn't yet used. It was called the gay plague. This gay plague is in America and it's coming to get our gay men in the UK too. Gay plague. And then after that, the term grid began to be used gay-related immune deficiency. And then when AIDS began to be used as a term, everybody, not everybody, but many, many people in the UK thought it was very funny 
to say that AIDS stood for asshole injected death sentence. That was what one had to. Jeez, that is horrible. Well, the world has changed, you know. The world has changed. I know in some places it hasn't changed, but the world, the world in the the Western world has changed. Not perfect, but uh, that would not be an acceptable joke now. But it was a very widespread acceptable joke uh, in the early and mid '80s in the UK. But don't forget, one of the things we must always remember is that although life for gay men and in LGBTQIA plus people has improved out of sight probably in the past 40 years, uh, you know, there are still 80-odd countries in the world where sex between men specifically is punishable by prison. And there are still some where it is a capital offence, where it is possible to be put to death by the crown or by, by the judiciary of that country for the simple offence of two men loving each other. And, you know, so our work as LGBTQIA plus campaigners is not done. And we'll get back to, to AIDS in a little bit when we talk about your book. Let's move on to combining your love for Formula One and auto racing to a career with writing. I've been very, very lucky uh, in my career, and I was extremely lucky to get a start, if you like, in the world of journalism around cars and motor racing. I didn't do particularly well. Um, I did well at school when I was a young boy, but then after that I began to lose interest, perhaps begun to find more interesting things to do in my late teens and so on, rather than study, including doing things with other late teenagers, <laughs> if you see what I mean. And um, so I probably uh, uh, ended up not working as hard as I should have been done after about the age of 16. So I didn't go to university at the right time at all. And I ended up doing a series of, uh, you know, random jobs. I worked in factories. Uh, I worked as a minicab driver, which means an unlicensed taxi driver. Uh, I mm -hmm. worked in a betting shop or another series of betting shops, gambling um, uh, uh, establishments on the high street that there were and are. I did various things. And then it was actually out of betting shops, a man who won't remember me, but I remember him. His name is Jim Kremin. And he was the racing post, which was an important um, a, a racing newspaper at the time, not car racing, but horses and greyhound racing. And he was the greyhound editor of the Racing Post. And I came across him or he came across me because of my work in betting shops. And we started chatting and he said, look, you know, you, you have a good turn of phrase. You're a funny guy. You can express yourself. Why don't you have a little go at writing something for me about greyhound racing? for the racing post. So I did. I was going to Greyhound races anyway as part of my work. And I did begin to write. A few, I wrote a few columns for him and he was kind enough to publish them and say they were okay. And after that, it, it, I mean, I was still in my early 20s and I realized, well, you know, I've kind of fallen off the academic and professional ladder because of not working hard enough at the end of my school time. And therefore doing these funny jobs, 
not very respectable jobs, not very well paid either. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, maybe I can marry up what I was, if you like, born to do, which is perhaps right, um, with this world that I've moved into, which is gambling and horses and greyhounds and so on and so forth. So I started writing those columns. And then, because I was always a very precise, grammatical, syntactical, technical writer, I began to do subbing shifts, sub-editing shifts, and was good at that. And from that, I then began to do subbing, sub-editing shifts on a magazine called Car, and it's pretty obvious what Car is about. It still exists. Yeah. It's about cars. And from there, I was offered a job as the sub-editor of Car magazine, which I took very, very happily. We're talking about in my probably mid to late 20s now. And then I managed to work my, my way up through that magazine very rapidly so that I was soon the features editor. And as features editor, I could commission and write features as I wanted. Uh, and I could make those about road cars, of course, but I also was able to work with then editor, uh, Gavin Green, on introducing more and more motor racing and Formula One content, which he was quite keen on. And so I began to do that. And then I was kind of on my way. I was in the club. I was in this little world, which I have enjoyed being in for the past 30 years, which is the world of motor racing, Formula One, journalism, media, PR, communications, and all the rest of it. What are some of the highlights you had as, as a writer for Formula One, um, any stories stick out to you with any of your your uh, magazines you wrote for? So I was at Car Magazine for three years, and then at a magazine that nobody has ever heard of called Focus for about a couple of years, and then I was headhunted to join F1 Racing Magazine as its editor in its launch year. 1996, by which time I was 33, 34. And by that time, I was, you know, well, probably reasonably well established in the world of car journalism, but not so much Formula One. But I knew that this was a great opportunity for me. And I hired some very good people to whom I'm extraordinarily indebted. I'm talking about uh, Alan Henry, no longer with us. Ian Young, no longer with us. Um, Peter Windsor, now a great, great friend. Um, Tom Clarkson, very, very good uh, writer, still a friend. Many others. I could also include um, Darren Heath, great photographer, great friend. And we, a small number of us, and I probably should mention others, and if I haven't, mentioned them I mean to mention them all but we managed to put together a great team that began to put together a good magazine and it was enormous fun if I want to you in answer to your question particular stories I think there are two one is a story quite early on in in um, it happened 
in the autumn of 1997, Darren Heath, our photographer, and I noticed a peculiar anomaly in the way that the rear brake discs of the McLaren cars were glowing on the exit of the Nicky Lauda curve at the A1 ring in 1997. Bit technical, I know. I won't get more technical, I promise. But we noticed that. We began to realise that there must be something that we didn't know about, and we did some proper sleuthing. And we discovered that there was a second, not illegal, incredibly ingenious. And then through some very, I have to say, on behalf of both of us, but I give Darren Heath the credit for this, um, found a way to take the photographs. And he did take the photographs uh, of the footwell. So you imagine you have to get the camera right down into the footwell of the car. And how can you do that? That was difficult. But he managed to do that uh, in a totally legal way. And we were able to come out as a monthly magazine with a scoop that scooped the world uh, that no newspaper or weekly magazine had. And we had shown that McLaren had this very, very clever second brake pedal. Well, it caused a storm in Formula One. Ferrari went absolutely mad about it, complained about it to the governing body of World Motorsport, the FIA, and eventually they managed to get it banned. But to be fair to McLaren, it wasn't illegal at the time uh, when they were running it. Ferrari managed to get it banned thereafter, about six months after. It was a huge story. And in a sense, it made my name, Darren Heath's name, and indeed F1 Racing as a magazine, as not only a nice, glossy, pretty, well-written magazine with some nice pictures in it, but also something that nobody who was connected with Formula One could possibly afford not to read every month. Uh, And it just became the Bible in that sense. It was extremely good for us. That was a very good story. The other good story, and all I would give Darren Heath... Well, and actually, let me interrupt you, too. Yeah, I I want to set the, the tone a little bit more, too, for Darren... You know, that obviously was digital photography age. To get a clear photo like you guys did, when you just can't snap a pic, look at it, oh, I need to do another one. Um, proper talent for the photographer to capture what you did. Yeah, he was shooting blind. He had to put his camera down into the footwell of Mika Hakkinen's McLaren and... He used to, I'll tell you the technique he used, BLF, bracket like fuck. Uh, And that's what he did. He just took as many pictures as he possibly could, playing with exposure, playing with bracketing this, playing with the shutter speed, playing with whatever he could do um, in order to Mm -hmm. hope that what he was shooting, which he could not see, that eventually when we got the films back, because remember, we didn't actually see the results for, you know, uh, probably 18 hours. By the time we then got the films back from Germany, which is where the race was, Nürburgring, back to London, and then we took them to Metro Processing in Clerkenwell, which was where everyone used to get their films done at that time professionally, slide films, Fuji Velvia. And we processed them, and Darren rang me. I was in the office putting the magazine to bed, and Darren rang me and said, I've got one absolutely perfect image, absolutely pin <laughs> shut. 
and it shows acceleration. I imagine. Fantastic, wonderful. Accelerator pedal, brake pedal, secondary brake pedal. Absolutely clear as anything. You can find it on the on the on the web now. Anyway, great, great, great result. And you know, all credit to Darren Heath, who was a brilliant photographer and is still and a good friend. Anyway, the other one that I suppose the other story that I suppose springs to mind is quite a few years later, about 10 years later, uh, and that was at Indianapolis, but not the Indy 500. I'm talking about the Formula One race, the United States Grand Prix Formula One race at Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. it used to be run at Indianapolis, not now. It's run in Austin, Texas now, but it was one yeah. run in Indianapolis. And there was a photo shoot. We, were, we at F1 Racing were doing some photo shoots of various drivers, and one of the drivers was Ralph Schumacher, not Michael Schumacher, Ralph Schumacher, Michael's younger brother. But he was racing for the Toyota team. Obviously, Toyota, a huge company, one of the largest companies in the world and probably the largest company in Formula One at that time. And of course, Ralph was Michael Schumacher's little brother and Michael Schumacher was the multi-champion and the most important person in Formula One at that time. And yeah. anyway, Ralph was a difficult man uh, with media. I'm not saying he was a difficult man all the time, but with media, with journalists, uh, he was tricky. And that year, he wasn't having a good time. His teammate, the Italian driver, Jano Trilli, was outpacing him and outclassing him. And we had had to report that in our race reports. Anyway, Ralph was angry. Anyway, after a couple of minutes of the photo shoot, he said, hang on, stop, stop, stop. Look, I'm only going to continue doing this photo shoot if you guarantee that you'll give me positive uh, editorial coverage from now on. So I said, I'm sorry, mate, it, it doesn't work like that. You know, uh, uh, I'm sorry. The fact is that Jarno truly has been doing a better job than you this year. And we try to be accurate and fair, but. We've had to report that, and I'm sorry if you don't like it, but it really would be, you know, if you were doing a better job than Jano Trulli, then we'd be reporting it that way, and Jano Trulli would be upset. But it's just the way it is. We just have to report it as we see it. And that's, in a sense, the contract that we have with our readers. They bought our magazine, and they have to make sure that what they're receiving and paying their money for is the best and most honest uh, and the most impartial journalism that we can provide. He said, okay, well, I'm not going to do the photo shoot then. I said, well, okay, don't. And he was very surprised because he was a senior Formula One driver. He was the little brother of the legend of the sport. He was driving for the largest company in the sport, Toyota. And he just didn't expect a tuppenny halfpenny idiot like me to <laughs> face him down like that. So he said, no, 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 no. I will do the short shoot, but you must do, as I say, you must write positively about me. And I just lost my temper. And I said to him, strange, strange turn of phrase. I was trembling with anger for some reason. I just said, Ralph, off you fuck. I didn't say fuck off. I said, <laughs> off you fuck. I don't know why. I thought it was more, maybe as I was beginning to frame the sentence, I realized that fuck off was so rude that off you fuck was somehow 
slightly less rude. He didn't regard it as less rude and he duly obeyed and <laughs> fucked off. At that point, I thought we were going to be in trouble. I thought I was going to get the sack. I thought that uh, Toyota would make a formal complaint and all the rest of it. And Michael Schumacher would never speak to us again. All of that. But in fact, what happened was that as I walked down the paddock thinking, is this my last afternoon in gainful employment in Formula One? I encountered Jarno Trulli, who was the other Toyota driver, Ralph Schumacher's teammate, doubled up in stitches of laughter, saying, please just tell me every second of it. I think it's fantastic. Tell me more. And then I actually got a formal apology from John Howitt, who was the British team principal of the Toyota Formula One team at the time, who formally apologised to me for his driver, Ralph Schumacher, seeking to um, pervert our editorial integrity in an appropriate way. So how about that? I was quite surprised. I lived, I've always been lucky. Always been a very lucky man. That That is definitely a, a highlight for sure. Um, what made you take the jump to work for a team? Obviously, McLaren, one of the top teams um, in Formula One. But what made you do that jump? For some reason, Ron Dennis, the McLaren boss, and I always hit it off which is doubly surprising when you think that my first big story was an expose of a technical secret that he and his engineers had perfected, which he wasn't pleased about at all, which was the second brake pedal in 1997. Mm -hmm. But by 2001, four years later, I think Ron, for some reason, had begun to like me and like the magazine. I mean, it was a very slick, good-looking magazine, and Ron likes slick, good-looking products. And oh, yeah, we used to get it here and I'd buy it myself. There you are. And it was very well, uh, it, it sold a lot. And the sponsors loved it because it showcased their logos in a very positive, stylish way. And of course, Ron was pleased that his sponsors were pleased because the sponsors brought the money in. So Ron began to think of F1 racing as a good thing. Therefore, he began to think of its editor, me, as a good thing. And we started having the odd lunch and the odd dinner chats and even though we're very very different people you know he's conservative big c and small c i'm not conservative i'm libertarian uh, not someone who would vote for the british conservative party at all he's straight i'm gay various different things very different types of people but we hit it off for some reason and in 2001 he offered me a job wasn't the right job wasn't the right money and so i politely declined it but we continued to stay um, in touch and meet and have coffees and lunches and dinners, even very boozy dinners sometimes, just the two of us, uh, at Formula One Grand Prix. And and then it was in 2007 that um, it became clear that he really did need the assistance and the input of a strategic communications director, which he didn't then have. He had press officers, very good ones, but he didn't have a strategic communications director. And the reason he needed one is there was a thing going on called Spygate, which is where one of his engineers, Mike Coughlin, had been caught in possession of 780 pages of Ferrari design IP. And it was... Um, uh, a hundred million dollar fine was the result. 
and he was being absolutely crucified in the press as a result. And he said to me, what can I do? I said, well, at the moment, all I can do is report it, mate, because I'm a journalist and an editor. If you want me to do something different, that will have to change. And in the end, he then said, OK, well, what I will do is employ you. I will employ you. Anyway, this was at the Turkish Grand Prix in 2007. We began this conversation. Ron loves negotiation. For some reason, we went on and on discussing it through the next Grand Prix, which was the Italian Grand Prix, and then the next Grand Prix after that, which was the Belgian Grand Prix, until we finally agreed terms, uh, including salary. And very fortunately for me, it was a very significant increase in salary for me. And that's how I got to join McLaren. And when I arrived at McLaren, McLaren was reeling from the $100 million fine and the disgrace of Spygate. But inside that team, I found an extraordinary esprit de corps. Great people, people who felt wronged and battered. And it was a great privilege to be part of that team, led by Ron Dennis. And we were determined to lift our company and our brand and ourselves back to the top. And that's what happened in 2008, which is probably the best year of my career. Yeah, I was going to say, you go, McLaren itself went from one of its lowest points to a high. I mean, and the, the, the big start for Lewis Hamilton with his first championship. Yeah, uh, you know, McLaren nearly died in the autumn and winter of 2007. No doubt about it. But it clung on. And the $100 million fine was paid. But that was very difficult to weather. And the sponsors were not impressed with the reputational kerfuffle in the media. And they weren't at all happy. So when we managed to survive and we went down to Melbourne for the first race of the year in 2008. You know, that was a team, as I say, reeling and struggling and pulling together, battening down the hatches and hoping that we had managed to get through our worst time and, and that the only way would therefore be up. But we were very nervous about everything. Anyway, what happened that first race of 2008 in Australia? Lewis Hamilton, our number one driver, he won. And we won. And I will say there wasn't a dry eye. Because you have to remember, this is a group of men and women who thought they were down and out. And now we were on top of the world and we won a Grand Prix. Formula One Grand Prix again. Fantastic memory. Unbelievable memory. And from there, that whole year was an extraordinary year, of course. Ups and downs of all crazy kinds. Um, Ferrari, with their two drivers, Felipe Massa and Kimi Raikkonen, winning races and very nearly winning the Formula One Drivers' World Championship as well. Our two drivers, Heikki Kovalainen from Finland, not at Lewis's level, but a very quick driver, but not at Lewis's level. But that enabled Lewis to score all the points, really, and take all the wins bar one. Heike won in Hungary. But it meant, therefore, that by the end of the year in Brazil, we were down to the wire. 
And it was either going to be Felipe Massa for Ferrari or Lewis Hamilton for McLaren who was going to win. And it is one of the most dramatic showdowns in any sporting history because what actually happened was that Lewis Hamilton, who was lying sixth and had to be fifth, had to be fifth to win the championship. Felipe Massa was up the road ahead winning the race. But if Lewis could be fifth, he would get enough points to cling on to the championship lead and be champion. But he wasn't fifth, he was sixth. And as he started that last lap, he was sixth. And as he went through all the corners of that last lap, he was sixth. Until the last corner of the last lap of the last race of the season, he overtook Timo Glock and became fifth. By which time, by which time the Ferrari team were already celebrating, were already celebrating their championship because Felipe Massa had won the race 40 odd seconds ahead. And they didn't know that Lewis still had a chance to overtook Timo Glock, but he did. And their celebrations had to be immediately truncated. I must have been incredibly upsetting for them. And I have to say, much as I was thrilled, now thinking back on that day, you know, abject disappointment for, Le for Felipe Massa and the Ferrari team. And my heart bleeds in that sense. But of course, we were overjoyed. We were absolutely overjoyed. Oh, oh, because yeah. We had come from the most extraordinary year where we thought 12 months before we were down and out. And 12 months on, we just won the world championship. Yeah, Lewis Hamilton's I, first I can't world imagine through your 10 years with McLaren and Formula One, you really started to deal with the change with social media um, in today's world. And obviously, it, it still continues to grow. The generation of even Lewis Hamilton, but the older ones that raced in your time with McLaren, they definitely had that all business, um, in a way, no personality shown. To where, at least for what I see, um, to where now you have guys like Lando Norris with McLaren, who I absolutely love. Um, Daniel Ricciardo, who they're going to be teammates next year. And I'm really excited to see what, what happens there. But you, was it a, a hard shift for you to see more personality come out with these, these drivers? Ron Dennis is not a fan of journalism, is not a fan of media is absolutely not a fan of social media and in a sense always liked his drivers to be kept quiet, professional, well-groomed, both physically in terms of haircuts and shaving, but also in terms of what they said in the media. Very, very careful. And in many ways, kind of drummed out some of the personality because some of the drivers that he had on his books at that time, like Mika Hakkinen, David Coulthard, but also the test drivers around at the time, like Alex Wurtz and Pedro de la Rosa, fantastically amusing guys. You know, uh, I mean, I could, I can't tell you stories which I'd like to tell you about. Um, uh, you know, night out, nights out with 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 those guys, but they're they you know fantastic times. And Alex Verts is actually my best friend best friend in the sport to this day. But anyway, um, no. Uh, so 
a lot of people always used to think, oh, Matt, you must be a control freak because that's what Ron likes you to do uh, in terms of preventing the drivers from having free reign to their personalities in the media. But actually not. My own personal view is that uh, Formula One is part of the entertainment business and it's always a great thing if you therefore have personalities and characters. So I would have much preferred personally to have uh, a far more um, relaxed uh, attitude to what the drivers can say and do. And for instance, Ron Dennis likes his drivers to be shaved and have short haircuts. I couldn't care at all about that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Lewis Hamilton is absolutely covered from head to toe in tattoos. I think he looks extremely cool. And uh, I think more of that kind of thing, the better. And actually, I think social media has had a big positive influence on really that whole situation because the existence of Twitter and Instagram particularly means that it's actually becoming impossible for teams, companies, corporates to exert control over individuals. They may try, but it's becoming impossible for them to do it at quite the same degree as they were able to when it was a question of what will we have Mika Hakkinen quoted as saying in a formal press release, which we will approve and then issue via email or print out and hand out in the Formula One media center. Now, when that was the previous way of doing everything, of course, it could be controlled. But when there's the ability of someone to write a few sentences or a few words on social media and then post them without them being approved, the control has disappeared. And actually, I think the fact that that control has disappeared or at least lessened has been a good thing because it has enabled the drivers today, uh, such as, for instance, Lando Norris, typical example of someone who is very open and fun on social media. But actually, he's not more open and fun than David Coulthard was 20 years ago. He's just more visible because he lives his life on social media where the fans can see it. Mm -hmm. Whereas the fun side of David Coulthard would have been shown to eight people on the inside of a Monte Carlo bar. And it just talks about, it's a great piece. I'm going to, I'll link it in the show notes. It's a great piece though, that you, that you wrote. And it tells the story of being, you know, like it, the title says, the only gay in the sport to how things have changed a little bit and and mainly on the media side of things the business side probably less so than the the racing side of the sport but that you do see changes in it so when i arrived in formula one you know the best part of 30 years ago i was very definitely the only gay in the formula one village there must have been others but they were not out they were not visible and by and large, I was accepted very warmly. I think partly because I was the editor of a successful magazine and therefore people didn't want to upset me. But nonetheless, uh, speak as you find, and I was treated very well. With one exception of one driver whom I will not name, and the reason I will not name him is that I don't want to trigger some silly media feeding frenzy about, uh, about him. But the reason why I want to mention him without mentioning 
him by name is that he began to call me a fat faggot. Now, I couldn't really argue with it because I was overweight and I was gay. I suppose I could only therefore argue with the, um, the rudeness, but not the factual elements of the accusation. But of course, I didn't like it being called a fat faggot. Who would? And the interesting thing about it was, although it was hurtful at the time, in fact, the result was positive for me because people began to say, well, poor old Matt being called that. And of course, the person who was calling me that began to be regarded as less of a good person, perhaps. And there isn't any point me mentioning who it was because it's the best part of 20 years ago. And I'm absolutely sure that he would never say anything like that nowadays because, you know, everybody's in the Western world moved on from that kind of uh, knee-jerk, uh, abusive vernacular that was quite normal back then. But nonetheless, uh, it has changed a lot. What has not changed, I will say, though, in Formula One and probably needs still to change, and that's why uh, last year with a group of other racing people, I was one of the founder founders and also I'm now a, an ambassador of an organization called Racing Pride, which we set up with Stonewall, which is a, an important uh, gay rights, U LGBTQIA plus rights organization in the UK, and of course called after the famous Stonewall Bar in New York, Christopher Street. And um, it, it was, we set that up because we were finding that young men and women, young boys and girls who were go-kart racers in their teens, were still getting uh, negative um, treatment and perhaps prejudicial behavior if they happened to be LGBTQ+. And also, even in Formula One, where I certainly am not the only gay in the village anymore because there are now um, gay journalists, um, marketers, PR people, and so on, but not necessarily out engineers and mechanics. So somehow the engineers and mechanics in Formula One who are gay have still found it difficult to be open about themselves even in 2020. And one of the things that I've been working on, particularly within Racing Pride, but the whole of Racing Pride is focused on, is to help teams, Formula One teams and race teams in general, to enable their LGBTQ plus engineers, mechanics to be able to be open with each other. One of the things mechanics do, you see, of course, is share bedrooms when they're on tour, when they're on the races, share hotel rooms. And I used to find mechanics would write me anonymous emails from their Hotmail or Gmail or Yahoo accounts, not from their team accounts, saying, you know, I know you're gay. I, I, I've heard about you being gay. You're the only gay in the village. And how can I come out? I'd love to come out, but I can't because I share a room. And, you know, when, when I'm coming out of the shower, he sees me naked. And when he's coming out of the shower, I see him naked and he doesn't know I'm gay. And I used to say, by reply in my email, I said, I don't think he'll mind. You know, he, he might've minded if it was 1950, but now it's, you know, we're talking about the year, I don't know, 2000 by this stage. I really don't think he will mind. 
you may underestimate him. He will not necessarily mind. In fact, if he, you know, he, he may in fact already know, he may already suspect, he may actually think it's quite cool. He might even ask you if he happens to see you catching a look at his his ass as he gets out of the tattoo out of the out of the sh shower. He might say, "Should I have a tattoo on, on my ass?" I don't know. I tried to make light of it, but I think that actually that's the case. That uh, in my whole experience of life, being open has been great and been the right way to be, and it's all the ways the advice I've given. Big proviso and caveat: obviously, if you live in Islamabad. That isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. But um, in the Western world, uh, particularly in 2020, most of the impediments to being out and proud are imaginary. I think. No, I, I hope think for I most won't... people they are true. You know, I, I think you bring up a good point too about the, the racing side of things still being a little bit more closeted. And that actually helps me transition to the next topic because... You moved on from McLaren and went to the W Series. It's an all-women's auto racing series, um, mainly in Europe, but you're going to have an American race next year, assuming COVID um, is dealt with. But so how was that? How did you make the transition? How have you found the culture there? And just tell me a little bit about the series itself. Well, halfway through, nine, halfway through 2017, I left uh, McLaren, and what I actually did over the next few months was write a novel, and we can come to that because the novel has, yeah, enough, it has nothing to do with Formula One at all. But that's when I wrote the novel. And then as I was kind of coming out of writing that novel in early 2018, uh, I, I began to, you know, my head put up out of the water again and thinking, right, what shall I do? Because I need to get an actual job uh, <laughs> as well. Uh, as you know, writing this novel, which I'd enormously enjoyed writing. Uh, and then David Coulthard, obviously an ex-McLaren driver and somebody I'd known for years and years, he rang me up and he said, uh, it was confidential at the time, of course, he said, a friend of mine, Sean Wadsworth, and I, David Coulthard, are planning to launch something probably called W Series, which will be a single-seater motor racing championship for female drivers only. And we'd like to talk to you about maybe you helping us by heading up the whole comms operation. Anyway, Im immediately I was a bit sceptical. I thought, really? But surely the whole point is that women should be able to race alongside men. And we discussed it. And then I realised that they'd done the thinking around that area and I now have two and I'm now I obviously agreed to join and I'm now a communications director of W series and have been there since the very start so if you ask about culture well you know we formed the culture and one of the things that we were absolutely keen and 100 percent uh, determined was that W series would completely embrace diversity and inclusion in every way so, and it does. And we have uh, always had um, lesbian drivers. We've got drivers from uh, Africa and Asia. Um, we have white drivers and black drivers. 
We have many different types of drivers. We have mums, we have teenage drivers, we have older drivers. And we decided we didn't want to discriminate against any of them and give them all an absolutely fair chance. Because we're not just a series or a business, we're also a mission. And what we want to do is get more and more women at the wheel of racing cars to drive more and more of them through the system so that our best drivers, our winners, our champions can end up graduating and reintegrating at the higher levels of mainstream international single-seater motor racing and eventually race and, yes, why not win in international Formula 3, Formula 2 and perhaps even why not Formula 1. Even though in the nine of the 900 drivers who have raced in Formula 1 in its 70-year history, even though it's always been open to both men and women, of those 900, only two have been women. And the last one was 44 years ago, and the other one was 62 years ago. And that can't be right. So we want to change that. So culturally, you know, absolutely W Series uh, champions, diversity and inclusion, including LGBTQ uh, plus inclusion and this year because of COVID-19 we had uh, to take a sabbatical or non-track sabbatical like many things did you know the the, the Olympic Games didn't run this year for instance mm-hmm. the mighty Olympic Games but we will be back on track next year but this year we ran the W Series Esports League so we uh, inaugurated and ran a 30 race uh, sim racing e-sports e-racing uh, championship involving all our our drivers and also guest drivers and then we actually had <clears throat> a trans driver as well um so yeah, charlie we, we, martin right charlie martin yes charlie martin who's a a, a wonderful and uh, a, a person and a good friend and also like me a um ambassador for racing pride and by the way two of our drivers uh lesbian drivers are also ambassadors to Racing Pride. That's Abby Eaton and Sarah Moore. And all of us really, I think, regard part of our role as to be role models. In other words, that if there are young uh, lesbian go-kart racers in their teens, or there are young gay men who are on the fringes of journalism or marketing in most sport, or whatever else, they can look to somebody who is quite happy to be open about it. And I think that that has been and remains an important part of the Racing Pride mission. And I actually think that W Series sits uh, extremely well with it and works uh, hand in hand with it on that. Do you have a date yet for the first race next year? Or is it still in the planning stages with COVID? still in the planning stages it will be next year but it's still in the planning stages what we've already confirmed is that uh, we will have two races next year which will be um on the formula one program one of which is in the united states of america austin texas and Mm -hmm. there's also be a race in mexico city but we will have at least eight other races or at least six other races for a total of eight or perhaps more but a total of eight at least and they will probably be in Europe and elsewhere, but we haven't agreed. We're talking to a number of people 
uh, including Formula One, but other series as well around uh, partnering. But we have two confirmed already, those two races in the United States of America and Mexico, but there will be more. Yeah, and I'll have links for the W Series in the show notes as well. Let's talk about the boy that made a difference. The boy made the difference, I should say. So novel you wrote, it's, it's your first, is it your first novel, but you did write the Emerson Fittipaldi uh, biography, or, or yes. co-wrote with it, right? Ghost um, wrote, yes. Ghost wrote it for him. Okay. Obviously, I'm, I'm assuming, like we started with your mother, she was probably a big influence, but what was the, what made you want to write a novel after a career in auto sports? I'd always thought that perhaps there might be a novel in me. I was brought up to it. My mother, my grandmother, uh, my great-great-aunt, my great-great-grandmother, all these people wrote uh, and wrote fiction. And so when I left McLaren halfway through 2017, um, uh, and I had a bit of time, I was 54 then, I'm 57 now, I was 54 then, I, I thought, what shall I do? Should I throw myself right back into the next job straight away, or maybe should I take advantage of the opportunity that uh, to make a bit of a sabbatical of myself? So I did that. I did go on a couple of holidays with my husband, Angel, um, and enjoyed them in France and Spain and Scotland. And... When I got back, or when we got back, that was by that time about September 2017, and I had this idea for a novel. And I had worked as a home support volunteer, or buddy, for an organisation called London Lighthouse, obviously based in London, which was at that time the largest HIV-AIDS centre in the world, which Princess Diana was a, a patron of and a frequent visitor of. And, you know, younger gay men, or indeed younger people, uh, don't always really know quite what a Holocaust HIV-AIDS was for gay men in the late 80s and early 90s. In the Western world, in America, in the UK, in France, and so on and so forth, in Brazil. Uh, of course, one thing I must make clear is that it still is globally, I mean, in sub-Saharan Africa, HIV-AIDS remains uh, an absolutely terrible problem because in those areas, they don't have the antiretroviral meds that we now have, which mean that if you are HIV positive in the Western world now, there is no reason why you should die soon. But I'm afraid in sub-Saharan Africa, that isn't the case. And of course, in the late 80s and early 90s, wherever you were in the world, it was not the case. If you were 30 and you were diagnosed HIV positive, the chances of you seeing 35 were slim. Chances of you seeing 33 were also not good. Of course, now, if you're 30 and you're diagnosed HIV positive, you should be able to live to be 90. Uh, it, it's a, a wonderful change. But at that time, it was a bit like the First World War. And young men particularly were dying like flies. And I was working as a home support volunteer or buddy, as I say. And that was very difficult. Um, but, but actually, uh, something I'm very proud of having done. Uh, however, it was very, very difficult and very challenging and very um, upsetting at times. And of course, I remember uh, the, the, the young men who, who, who died, some of whom I 
you know, what was helped them at their most um, difficult time. Um, often in a hospital that doesn't exist in London, which was called the Middlesex Hospital in Mortimer Street, and particularly a ward called the Broderick, doesn't exist anymore, um, obviously, because it doesn't need to. But uh, it did then. And I thought there might be a novel that could be written with that as a narrative backdrop. Now, I don't, it does sound, I'm making it sound an incredibly upsetting, miserable, maudlin, depressing book um, because of misery and death and illness and disease. And uh, obviously that exists in the book. But actually, it is the narrative backdrop to a an interesting, I hope, and fast-paced, rollicking tale around a number of Londoners, some of whom are gay and some of whom are straight, some of whom are men and some of whom are women, <clears throat> with this as a narrative backdrop. And I don't want to spoil the plot for your listeners, but uh, they can spoil the plot for themselves by buying the book. So the boy made the difference. Yeah, because I'll have links to the... You've sent me the UK link, and obviously you can get it on Amazon as well. But there's okay. also a US link, and that, and I should say... I think, is it proceeds from the book go to a charity? So all proceeds from sales of The Boy Made the Difference, my first novel, all of them will go to the Bernadine Bishop Appeal. Now, Bernadine Bishop is my mother, or was my mother, who died of cancer in 2013. And when she died, I set up in her memory and her honour the Bernadine Bishop Appeal, which fundraises for Click Sergeant, which is a wonderful charity, which acts to help children and young people and their families when those children and young people are diagnosed with cancer. And I don't think there can be a more deserving charity than that which helps people around the whole area of child cancer. And my mother was very much a family person, you know, not only my mother and my brother's mother, but also a, a grandmother and a doting one. And it seemed to me that the beneficiary of the Bernadine Bishop Appeal should be not just a cancer charity, but a children's cancer charity. So yes, every penny that I earn from sales of The Boy Made the Difference will go to Click Sergeant Children's Cancer. That's awesome. I, I do want to touch on the, you made the reference about um, the, the dying in the 80s from AIDS is like, how the young died with war for World War One. It's pretty accurate, but I, I think it also should be pointed out too that in the 80s when gay men, and this is coming from the American perspective, I don't know what it was like in England, but gay men in the, in the US, when they were diagnosed and they were dying, unfortunately for, or fortunately for World War uh, deaths, they're celebrated and honored, but for people who died of HIV and AIDS, they were not. A lot of times they were shamed. They were abandoned by their family. And so while your book is not a depressing book, I, I hope people who read it understand how much has changed with HIV and AIDS. And it, it's in the recent history. It's not like it's hundreds of years ago. It's, it's recent. Exactly. Everything you say is absolutely true. And that's really why I decided to write it. I mean, my husband is 31, I'm 57. So that is quite an age gap. And he is of an age where, thankfully, he didn't have to live 
with first-hand experience of seeing his friends die in their 20s. And I, of course, am of an age where I did have to have that experience. And I realised from getting to know and love Angel, my husband, uh, that he and also his friends of his age didn't know that. And I began to explain it to them and, and by and large they wanted to know more. They were interested. And then I thought, well, why don't I turn this into a narrative treatment, which is hopefully going to be a novel that is um, of literary merit anyway, but also will not only entertain, um, but also inform and educate. Uh, because as you say, it really isn't very long ago. It isn't 100 years ago. It's 30 years ago, only 30 years ago, when life for gay men was completely different from how it is today. Mm-hmm. Let me wrap up our, our chat right now with the question I ask everyone. If you can go back in time and, and tell your you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old self, whenever you started to identify as a gay man or you thought you were, what's one thing you could tell yourself to help you in the process, to maybe help kids now who are going through that, to help them you know, get through it and understand it and accept it? Really, I have two little mottos that might work as an answer to your question. The first is live and let live. And think hard about what that means in all its nuances. So live and let live. So live, do live, do what you want to do in your life, enjoy it, do it to the best of your ability and with your greatest energy, live live your life, but also let live. Allow people to live in a different way from you if that's how they want to be. If you don't like it or you don't approve of it or it doesn't float your boat or it doesn't interest you, it doesn't matter. We're all different. And I think difference is something that we who are all in this weird and wonderful life together need to understand is important and to be embraced. And actually, I would say that some of the changes in the political uh, regimes of the United States of America and the United Kingdom in recent years have perhaps not helped with that very much. No, not Um, at all. (laughs) Nobody uh, on this side of the Atlantic is a very big fan of President Trump, I'm afraid to say. Um, A lot of us over here aren't either. (laughs) I I realise that. I realise that. But I think live and let live and embrace the, dis- the, the difference. That's the first one. The second one is, if in doubt, say yes. And what I mean by that, of course, I don't mean you say yes to everything. If somebody comes up with an extraordinarily bad idea, um, they suggest that you murder someone, uh, then, of course, I don't mean you should say yes to that. But then you shouldn't be in doubt because your answer should be no. What I mean is that if you're genuinely in doubt about something and you've thought hard about whether you should do it and you're still in doubt, as you go through your life from age zero to age 90 or whatever number of years you're granted, if when in doubt you say yes, compared with if when in doubt you say no, I am convinced that you'll end up having a better life and you'll do more good and you'll have more fun. 
you might make some mistakes. But if in doubt, say no is a bad maxim, which leads to an unhappier person delivering uh, less benefit for his or her uh, fellow human beings. So those are my two maxims that I suppose my 57 years have taught me. And if I were 12, I would like to uh, hear them is live and let live. And if in doubt, say yes. Awesome. Matt, thank you so much. If you are a fan of Formula One, if you're a fan of history, follow this man for that reason alone um, on Twitter. And what is your Twitter handle? At the Bish F1. My nickname in Formula One or in motor racing is the Bish because my surname is Bishop. So at the Bish F1. Yeah, I mean the the tweet over the weekend with um, the first and only uh, gay auto racer. No, there's been three. There's been three. There've been three Formula One drivers. There's been Mike Beutler in the early seventies. There's been Nisha Cabral, who died two weeks ago, uh, who was bisexual, and that's the one I tweeted about. And there's Lella Lombardi who's one of the only two female drivers. So actually, the three uh, LGBTQIA plus drivers in Formula One history out of 900 drivers, one is gay, one is bi, and one is lesbian. Uh, Boyther though, though actually came out, or I guess it, he sort of came out when he was actually racing though, right? Boitler, Mike Boitler sort of came out uh, when he was racing in the early 70s, yes. But not, um, he kind of edged his way out. It was before my time. I obviously never met him. Sadly, he oh, yeah. died. He died of AIDS in Los Angeles in 1988. Uh, so all of these stories interlink, don't they? And Nisha Cabral, who was bisexual but closeted throughout his life, he only found the courage to come out at the age of 75. And he died two weeks ago at the age of 86. So I hope that he had a nice last 11 years. Yeah, hopefully. But yeah, thank you, Matt, for coming on. It was a, a long talk and I had so much fun. And you're such a fun guy to talk with. Um, so thank you for taking the time. I enjoyed it very much, Randy. Thank you very much.